Hey y'all, and welcome back to my big fat recovery. It's been a minute, so let's talk about atypical anorexia. Hey y'all, welcome back. <laughs> it's been a minute. Um, wow. I did not plan on taking this long of a break, but to be quite honest, my life uh, just really did not allow space for some of my things that I enjoyed doing the most, like this podcast. And um, since we last spoke, my life has drastically changed, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. Um, but I am really ready to get this podcast up and running again. It feels very cup filling to me, if that makes sense, or like spoon replenishing, if you use spoon theory. Um, it, it feels like something that adds to my life as opposed to takes away. Um, it feels like it adds to my capacity. So, um, the last time we spoke, I lived in New York and, uh, not the city, upstate New York. <laughs> and I was working in crisis social work in the nonprofit world and applying to grad school. And now I am in grad school. <laughs> I'm getting my PhD in clinical psychology in Florida, and I'm studying specifically weight stigma and eating disorders. Um, I'm just in the beginning of my program, so uh, if you hadn't guessed already, or if this isn't already obvious, obviously this podcast is not me as a therapist, because I'm not a therapist. This is me as somebody with lived experience, and somebody who's been an advocate in the field for a while and has a lot of thoughts. This is just me with a lot of thoughts. Um, but I am in school to become a psychologist and um, a researcher and a clinician, and honestly, so far I'm loving it. It is just um, such a change, but it's a really good change for me. I was kind of living in survival mode <laughs> for a while. Uh, the job that I had was awesome. I loved it. Um, and, you know, it was crisis social work. So there was a lot of burnout. There was a lot of vicarious trauma. Um, and I just was in survival mode. I was working about 40 hours a week, but I was also on call one to two days a week. And it was just... Um, you know, like I said, there wasn't a lot of space in my life for kind of moving forward. It was a lot of just like getting through the day to day. And I feel really just kind of rejuvenated and um, good. I don't know. I just feel good being in the next chapter and kind of taking the next steps to be where I want to be in life. So um, that being said... Today, we're going to talk about atypical anorexia. We're going to talk about what it is. We're going to talk about what the experts have to say about it. We're going to talk about um, what internet trolls have to say about it and what all of you had to say about it. If you don't already follow the podcast, um, definitely pull out your phone and follow at my big fat recovery podcast on Instagram. And um, I'm going to be doing some more of this type of thing, I think. Um, it was fun asking all what you thought and being able to include that in the episode. So I'm really looking forward to you um, hearing from your fellow audience members. I think the more voices, the better. And um, yeah, so I did some question boxes and I did some uh, DMs and some voice memo. And uh, yeah, we're going to get into all of it. And I don't know. I just want to say thank you for being here. Um it means a lot to me that, you know, people have like continued to follow the podcast's account on Instagram, even while I've been away. Um, it's not about the follower numbers for me, but I will say like seeing those notifications pop up kept this in the forefront of my brain. And I just kept saying like, man, like I want to keep doing this. And then life would happen. Um, applying to grad school is no joke, y'all. And I applied two years in a row. So, um, it's a good example of it only takes one yes, and it <laughs> that persistence is uh, a thing to strive for, because I will tell you I applied the first year and was rejected. Well, I was waitlisted at one and then rejected from all nine programs I applied to, and then this past year I was rejected from seven and accepted to one. Um, so that is 16 rejections and one yes, and it took one yes, and I'm so happy in the program that I'm in. Um, I did not expect to uh, be moving to Florida in my life. I'll tell you that as somebody who lived in New York State her whole life. Um, 
it is an adjustment. There is a reason that people don't visit Florida in August. It is a little bit like Satan's crotch down here. I'm not going to lie. You're welcome for that image. But yeah, it's very hot. It's very humid. Um, (laughs) And I am just adjusting and wearing sunscreen. Did you know that talking about atypical anorexia is sort of how I got started in this field as um, an advocate? (laughs) I uh, published a blog post back in 2018, I think, um, on a personal blog that I had just started. I was like, "Mm, maybe I want to talk about this stuff that has affected me so much. And I wrote this blog post and it was called Top 5 Myths About Atypical Anorexia. And, um, a person who ran the Nita blog found it and was like, Hey, can we publish this on the Nita blog? And I was like, frickety, frickety. Yeah, you can. Um, and she did. (laughs) And we became friends and then a bunch of nonsense with Nita happened and she quit Nita and we're still friends to this day. Um, but Yeah, the blog post still lives on Nita's blog, uh, even though I don't really support Nita anymore at this point. Uh, We're going to do an episode on that at some point, but um, the long story short is that they did a fat activist real dirty, (laughs) and, um, you know, somebody who had contributed a lot to the field, and they uh, just made some choices that I really disagree with. And they're not doing the policy work that they really were doing when I worked with them. I even did some legislative lobbying for them. Um, and that kind of stuff just like, isn't really happening anymore over at NIDA. And I think that's where a lot of the action needs to be. So I'm really grateful to that experience because that is what got me here. Um, so we're going to start off by talking about the DSM. D as in doomsday preppers, S as in supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, and M as in Molly, otherwise known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, this book is pretty pivotal in the world of mental health, specifically around diagnosis. Now, it plays a bigger role in some ways than it should, like in terms of insurance and managed care and people drawing a lot of conclusions from the diagnoses and from the text, but um, for better or for worse, (laughs) you decide, this is the book that we go off of when we're diagnosing a mental disorder. So uh, it does have a bit of a troubled history. For example, it used to have things like homosexuality listed as a mental disorder. Um, And I say used to because the book evolves. So, uh, for example, the DSM-4 came out in 1994, the DSM-5 came out in 2013, and the DSM-5-TR, which means text revision, so it's an updated DSM-5, came out in March of this year, so nine years since the last one. So March of 2022 is when this book came out. She is a thick queen let me tell you let's do some dsm asmr you ready it's a big book it is let's see how many pages it is it is 1050 pages but it's more than that because there's all these like appendixes and stuff that use uh roman numerals uh so it's a big book so we're gonna flip to the eating disorder section and i will say you know there are some things that i think have improved uh, in the diagnostic criteria for eating disorders and some things that just are very disappointing. So let's start with anorexia nervosa. We're going to look at the diagnostic criteria there. Um, and we're going to look at then that compared to the atypical anorexia diagnosis and where that lives in the DSM. So if you're following along, which for your sake, I hope you're not, we're on page 381 of the DSM 5 TR published in March of 2022. You ready? So there are three diagnostic criteria that uh, must be met for anorexia nervosa. And the first one is where the most controversy really lives. So diagnostic criteria A says restriction of energy intake relative to requirements. Hmm, What are the requirements? I'm going to, I'll put my comments at the end, Molly, stop interjecting. Okay. Leading to a significantly low body weight in the context of age, sex, developmental trajectory, and physical health. 
significantly low weight is defined as a weight that is less than minimally normal or for children and adolescents less than that minimally expected. Are you screaming yet? Because I am internally. Um, yeah, it's just, okay. So the diagnostic criteria used to say that you had to be underweight according to BMI based on a percentile to be diagnosed with anorexia. Is this description better? Uh, I think we're getting there. You know, it's uh, maybe better, but this is still used to say, hey, fat people, you don't count <laughs> because uh, you don't have significantly low body weight in the context of your age or sex. Now, developmental trajectory is one area that can be used to say, okay, well, this person lost a significant amount of weight. But what about people who have been weight cycling for years because of fat phobia and diet culture and uh, who aren't seeing major weight changes, but who are experiencing uh, really severe <laughs> Uh, eating disorders. What do we do with them? Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's criteria numero A. <laughs> numero A. Uh, criteria B is intense fear of gaining weight or of becoming fat or persistent behavior that interferes with weight gain, even though at a significantly low weight. What <laughs> if you're fat? So, like, I interpret that more as, like, okay, you're afraid of becoming fat and gaining weight. But, you know, this is a good example of like mental illnesses exist in the context of our world and we live in a fat phobic world. So uh, are we diagnosing everybody who's, uh, you know, afraid of being uh, fat? No, because they're not necessarily meeting a clinical threshold for these other criteria and it's not interfering in their life. Or is it? I don't know. You tell me. Okay, so criteria three or C, I should say, disturbance in the way in which one's body weight or shape is experienced, undue influence of body weight or shape on self-evaluation or persistent lack of recognition of the seriousness of the current low body weight. Again, assuming that there's low body weight. Then there are two subtypes. <laughs> subtype one, restricting type. And subtype two, binge eating slash purging type. What does binge eating and purging sound like? Psychopathology 101 with Professor Molly over here. Does that sound like bulimia to you? Well, no, because uh, the only difference that I can tell as a basically still lay person at this point reading this book is uh, that, and let's look at their uh, differential diagnosis section here in bulimia, but um, is BMI, is uh, weight. They're saying, okay, well, you're underweight and you're engaging in binge purging or you're not and you're engaging in binge purging. So that is the DSM for anorexia. There's a lot more there. One of the things that I'm not going to get super into is that it specifies current severity based on three guesses. The first two don't count based on BMI, otherwise known as the bullshit meter of incompetence. You can have mild, moderate, severe, or extreme based on your BMI. So uh, obviously... <laughs> Um, you know, if my BMI is, I don't know, double the mild one, I, uh, you know, I'm not going to fit in this category at all, even under mild, which also let's talk about how we're calling a life-threatening illness mild and what that means for people internally. I hope people don't, uh, learn what category they're in, but I have a feeling they sometimes do. So if we flip through, we're going to go through anorexia, through bulimia. We were turning the pages. Do, to do, to do. We're going through binge eating disorder, which is the most prevalent eating disorder among Americans. Okay. Now we get to the very last page and a half, like not even page and a half, like a page of the DSM's eating disorder section is other specified feeding or eating disorder. And then there's an unspecified feeding or eating disorder section. 
It says this category applies to presentations in which symptoms characteristic of a feeding and eating disorder that cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning predominate but do not meet the full criteria for any of the disorders in the feeding and eating disorders diagnostic class. Um, Okay, so examples of presentations that can be specified using the other specified designation include the following. Atypical anorexia, bulimia, uh, or binge eating of low frequency and or limited duration, so uh, less frequent or for less time, if you have one of those, or purging disorder, which is purging without binge eating, or night eating syndrome, which is um, recurrent episodes of eating at night after you wake up from sleep. So what does it say underneath atypical anorexia? We have how many sentences here? One. Gets one sentence. (laughs) Okay. All of the criteria for anorexia nervosa are met, except that despite significant weight loss, the individual's weight is within or above the normal range. Individuals with atypical anorexia nervosa may experience many of the physiological, physiological complications associated with anorexia nervosa. Uh, Remember when I said that not everybody loses significant amount of weight and how are we even defining significant weight loss here? I think this is really part of what has led me (laughs) to Florida is, uh, you know, I'm here for this PhD program, but I'm specifically working with a researcher who studies weight stigma and eating disorders. So I, you know, I think this diagnosis personally, I believe it's harmful. If you haven't figured that out already, that's how I feel. Um, That is based on uh, my own experience, but what also it's based on uh, just being a human being with a sense of logic uh, and consideration of others. And it's based on what the experts think as well, which we're going to talk about. And it's based on um, research. So, you know, what I'm really interested in is like, yes, like people might not meet, you know, even the mild BMI requirement or whatever for anorexia, but um, what about the fat patients? That's where my brain goes, is there are people who are, you know, say you like ate a big dinner and you didn't poo yet and your doctor weighs you and they're like, oh, well, you know, you're just over the BMI requirement for anorexia, so I'm going to throw you into the atypical anorexia bucket. I have a feeling that that person who didn't take their three-pound poop is going to have a very different experience than the fat patient who walks in that doctor's office and the doctor never even asks about eating disorders, or if they do, they assume it's binge eating. That That is kind of where my clinical and research concern lies um and what I want to focus on personally and that's part of what this podcast is about is you know my big fat recovery it's specifically about you know the stories that we haven't (laughs) paid attention to um and the patients who have been left behind so I solicited folks opinions on Instagram again follow the Instagram do it, people. Um, I do plan on using it more in future episodes as well. Um, and some folks had some really good insight about atypical anorexia and just some things that even helped me direct framing this episode. So the first thing I asked in a little suggestion box thing was, what have you heard about atypical anorexia? What assumptions have you heard or that you've heard other people have? Um, you know, what have you heard? What are some assumptions? And, uh, there were four main things that came up and I picked four that kind of highlighted those. So one person said that it's not as serious or real um, as quote, real anorexia. So we're already feeling like it's not real. (laughs) Um, That my ED was not bad enough and that I didn't need a higher level of care because I wasn't quote, in dire need. So again, that idea of not being serious enough. And another person said, the assumption that you don't need to weight restore. Hmm, yes. Um, and lastly, um, a person said that medical concerns aren't relevant at a higher BMI and that it's less serious than they put the clown emoji. Um, I, I love that emoji. Okay, 
So then I asked folks um, to tell me about their specific experiences. And wow, (laughs) Um, I felt rage. I felt seen. I felt empowered. I was feeling the whole scope of human emotions reading these. And I want to share some of them with you now. The first person said, I was diagnosed with atypical anorexia. It made me feel incredibly invalid and only fueled my eating disorder more because my ED convinced me I wasn't sick enough, so my behaviors increased. The next person said, on the one hand, receiving the diagnosis made it possible for me to receive treatment after years of my disordered eating being ignored by every professional I talked to. On the other hand, it being called atypical is misleading, I think. It had the same symptoms and physical consequences as, quote, typical anorexia. My physical symptoms are always being ignored, and when I'm in treatment with individuals with a lower weight, they're taken way more seriously. Hmm. The next person says, I've been diagnosed with several different eating disorder diagnoses parentheses for essentially the same thing. Although my behaviors have changed over the years, I wasn't diagnosed until a time I had solely restrictive behaviors. They go on to say I was diagnosed with unspecified eating disorder, other specified eating disorder, anorexia. I just share that because I find it interesting that I can have one eating disorder and multiple diagnoses for it. It's almost like the DSM criteria for EDs is a broken system. Hmm. I recognize that I live in a smaller body, so I don't know if the diagnostic discrepancy alone has impacted my care at all, but I can say that the times I've seen a diagnosis other than anorexia nervosa, despite meeting criteria, it felt invalidating. I honestly think the DSM criteria for EDs needs an overhaul, but for now, I think the atypical anorexia diagnosis is unnecessary and unhelpful to all involved and should be deleted. And then the next person uh, had a really interesting way of handling this that I really liked. They said basically that they asked to not know their diagnosis. They said, I believe my diagnosis is atypical anorexia, but I have chosen not to ask my care team. And they have respected that. I knew before I found a therapist that realistically atypical anorexia is what I have. But because of accounts like yours, I became very aware of fat phobia and ED treatment. Oh, and I honestly believe I would not have been able to find the right help without you. <laughs> this is so nice. Oh my goodness. Okay. They go on to say, I think I would have found places that weren't for me, although that's all there is. And I wouldn't, and I would have given up. I was able to tell my therapist upfront about this, about, whoa, 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 Molly, try again. I was able to tell my therapist upfront, this is what I think I have. And also I don't care about the diagnosis. I just wanted help. She let me know she needed to use diagnosis for insurance, but I didn't need to know what they were if I didn't want to, and we never discussed it since. So, uh, oh yeah, and they say, but until now, I've avoided the diagnosis because I thought it would do more harm than good. So that's one way to handle it, for sure. I think, um, I don't know if I asked what my diagnosis was. I think I saw it on my paperwork, and I, I wonder if, if that maybe is how folks often find out. So the next story is actually a voice memo. How fun is that? Um, I had somebody, I put it out there that folks could send me voice memos and one brave soul did it um, and sent me a little bit about their story. So a little bit about my personal experience. I have never been diagnosed with either anorexia nervosa or atypical anorexia nervosa. I was diagnosed with OSFED, so other specified feeding or eating disorder, at a time when I was really only engaging in restrictive behaviors. Mm. And the result of this was that I concluded that I hadn't restricted, quote unquote, enough to get oh, a yeah. AN or AAN diagnosis, which sense. was um, a, set, a source of invalidation for me and also created some logistical problems around my insurance providers and other people in my life not really taking things seriously. And it just made me sort of feel like, well, I guess I have a diagnosis, but it's sort of this weird, vague, confusing diagnosis that sort of indicates a, somehow a sub-threshold problem or one that doesn't hit on any of these sort of like more commonly known and accepted diagnoses as being indicative of an eating disorder that is creating problems and deserves attention. 
And as somebody who doesn't generally experience medical anti-fat bias and non-eating disorder contexts, I've had to constantly advocate for providers to take my eating disorder seriously. And I've gotten a variety of invalidating and absurd comments when I have told providers that I have an eating disorder and they have to be eating disorder competent um, when working with me. God forbid. And I don't know if this level of confusion and validation and frustration would have occurred if I had been able to describe my eating disorder as being anorexia nervosa or atypical anorexia nervosa, because I think there's more understanding of both those terms, what they mean, and the fact that they should be taken seriously as compared with OSFED. I cannot back that up with experience because I only have my experience and I don't know what it would have been like to show up in the same body with the same set of symptoms and a different diagnosis. I also don't want to pretend that I wouldn't have felt some level of personal validation and closure in getting a diagnosis of um, that had the word anorexia in it because as it was, I felt like my diagnosis itself was sort of another source of feeling not sick enough, feeling constantly invalidated. And when I was wondering to myself, you know, why do I actually have to give up these behaviors? Why am I taking so much time to work on recovery from something that doesn't feel real and didn't feel enough and didn't feel any sense of closure? I would have to constantly remind myself of all the medical complications I went through and the ways that my life was disrupted by this whole process of both sort of overly pursuing my eating disorder behaviors past the point where I could continue to live a normal life with them. And also the even greater amount of disruption I had to make in the other things I was doing in order to take the time to actually um, begin the process of nutritional rehabilitation. And I don't know overall if there's any way to quantify eating disorders that isn't ultimately going to make this competitiveness and sense of hierarchy and constant feeling not sick enough any worse. Like there are different levels of medical instability that people who have eating disorders experience. There's different types of behaviors, which create different health risks and there's different durations of eating disordered behaviors. But we also have different survival genes, which really mitigate who is necessarily going to have the most extreme complications um, based on their level of behavior. Yeah. Or like what complications they might experience. And so that just sort of muddies this idea of severe versus less severe Mm -hmm. eating disorders, I think. And it just makes it really um, difficult to come up with any way to categorize them. That's not going to make things worse for the people experiencing them and continue this sort of sense of scarcity of care always and not feeling deserving of care or always being able to see someone who um, is getting something that you want either in terms of um, a diagnosis that you think would be validating or a level of care that you think that you need or even a level of concern from other people. And I guess all of this is to say that the division between anorexia nervosa and atypical anorexia nervosa is bullshit, but that the problem with how we categorize eating disorders kind of goes beyond that. And as a final note, I just want to add that the day I learned that the only difference between the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa binge purge subtype and bulimia nervosa is BMI was the day that I fully stopped believing in the DSM. (laughs) Fair enough. That is a weird, yeah. This whole diagnostic system is so complicated, and how do we fix it? I don't really have the answer for that, and I think that is beyond all of our pay grades for sure. Thank you so much for sharing your experience via your own voice. I feel like that adds a good good perspective to the pod, so I appreciate that. We're going to hear from that person a little bit more in the episode later on. But for now, the next person says, I struggle very often with the awareness of the difference in how my ED is addressed now versus when I was in a more natural, bigger body. Doctors used to tell me, well, you're obviously not malnourished and I've never heard of atypical anorexia. Oof, I've been told that too. But now they don't even acknowledge my body or question my history. When I was declining an IOP, I literally had to beg for help when there was ample evidence I had been quickly declining. I know if I returned to a higher level of care right now, say in an equally symptomatic state, I would have a vastly different experience. The one my quote typical friends had, it brings up a lot of mixed unpleasant feelings. If they didn't care then, why should I trust them now? Ooh. Yeah, some big feelings there that I definitely can relate to, you know, in my own experience. So next I turned to the internet. (laughs) 
And I found um, some folks who talk about this a lot, um, some fat activists, some researchers, and I pulled two things specifically I wanted to share with you. One was a quote by Aubrey Gordon, um, at your frat, at your fat friend, why our fat friend says, um, we live in a world that views thin people's eating disorders as tragic and fat people's eating disorders as inspiring. And that summed up so much for me because, you know, (laughs) for fat people with atypical anorexia or anorexia or whatever we're going to decide to call it, um, you know, they're not even being screened for eating disorders. Um, And there's a researcher who's talked about this in an interview that I found. So Erin Harrop is an awesome researcher. I would highly encourage that you read their stuff. They study atypical anorexia. They're, uh, they have a doctorate in social work, which I think, I think brings a really good perspective. (laughs) Social work tends to be much more like, let's examine the systemic forces here than psychology. Um, so Aaron Harrop did an interview with Aaron Flores (laughs) from Center for Discovery And there were two quotes that I pulled out that I thought were particularly impactful for me reading them that I thought I would share with you. So this is an article specifically about atypical anorexia. And they say, personally, I'm not a big fan of putting all the eating disorder diagnoses into tiny categories. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. And I think it allows weight stigma to drive the diagnosis. Most eating disorders involve some combination of restriction and body image disturbance. And if eating disorders go on long enough, they often involve exercise, binging, and or purging. Personally, I wish we thought much more transdiagnostically about the similarities between eating disorders rather than focusing on the differences. The treatments, Molly, the differences (laughs) create a hierarchy and that hierarchy manifests in bias and inequitable treatment. Could not agree more. We're going to talk a little bit more about that hierarchy later on in the episode, because that's a very real thing. Um, And I think it's interesting to think about, you know, what do we do? If we wanted to change this, how would we change it? I don't know. I think that's above all of our pay grades. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, but I do think this, you know, what I do know is that the focus on weight is harmful. Um, And one of the things we've been talking about in one of my classes specifically about psychopathology is diagnoses that are categorical or that, or diagnoses that are dimensional and, you know, just differences in how we categorize. So that was interesting to me to think about. And then the other thing they said was, I think a big difference, um, and they're talking about between folks with atypical anorexia and anorexia, according to their research, is that many of the folks with atypical anorexia aren't getting any treatment at all. I spoke with many folks whose providers never asked them about their eating disorders, even when they had all the classic red flags of an eating disorder. Then they go into list some of those red flags. But providers didn't ask about an ED, or they congratulated them on their weight loss instead. So while small bodies in eating disorder treatment are getting more affirming treatment than people in medium bodies, large bodies are often not getting any treatment at all. That's part of what makes me so passionate about this. Um, So lastly, the person I wanted to point you towards, um, if you have had the experience of being diagnosed with atypical anorexia, um, I want you to check out this Instagram account or if you just want to learn more about it. But it's at atypical AN research. So that's atypical AN research. I will um, put it in the show notes. And this is a PhD student who um, is doing her PhD looking at atypical anorexia and who is doing her study um, on folks' lived experiences. And I would highly recommend um, if you're able to and you want to sign up, um, help out, you know, a fellow PhD student <laughs> with her research. Um, I, I've looked through it and I really like her approach and some of the stuff that she's posting, which also helped direct me in looking for research on this topic, which I want to talk to you about next. So what does the literature say about this? I think it's really important that we practice from an evidence-based perspective. And uh, so what does the evidence say? Um, One of the things, well, so um, there were like three studies that I found specifically from looking at this person's account, Atypical AN Research. I think her name is Kelsey. Um, 
hopefully I got that right. I'm just remembering from the Instagram bio. Um, <laughs> but Kelsey has posted about some research specifically, and three of those studies I'm going to talk about. The first one um, was a 2021 study exploring the experience of being viewed as not sick enough, a qualitative study of women recovered from AN or AAN, anorexia or atypical anorexia. Um, and there were three themes, and two of them I really want to highlight. So the first one was dealing with the focus on one's physical appearance while battling a mental illness. Um, and participants shared that family, friends, and treatment providers focused more attention on their physical appearance and weight rather than the psychological aspects of anorexia. And this influenced them feeling the need to become thinner or worse to be taken seriously. The other theme I wanted to highlight from this study um, was the feeling pressure to prove oneself, Project Perfect, they called it. Participants shared that the self-ascribed importance of becoming successful at the eating disorder to prove oneself to be sick enough emerged in response to not being taken seriously by family and treatment providers. Speaks volumes, I think. Um, one of the other studies that Kelsey highlighted on her account was um, about uh, severity. And again, I want to add the caveat here that when we're talking about severity, there are different ways to frame that. The DSM puts severity in terms of BMI. Uh, hopefully, we can all agree maybe that's not the best way <laughs> to categorize severity. But what, you know, should we be categorizing severity? Does it serve a purpose? Um, I don't know. I think um, it's important for us to acknowledge, what I do know is it's important for us to acknowledge that eating disorders can be severe no matter your weight. So um, there were a couple of studies that I wanted to highlight here. So one was Sawyer et al. 2016 found no difference in bradycardia, which is low heart rate or orthostatic um, hypotension or instability. So that's basically when you go from sitting to standing, does your blood pressure drop and your heart rate increase? Um, so they found no difference between patients with anorexia and atypical anorexia in their study. And they were looking at um, adolescents who were in treatment. So, you know, that's already cutting out a lot of the population, but I think that's really important to note is that, um, you know, their weight in itself didn't make the difference <laughs> in bradycardia or orthostatic instability or in difference of frequency of psychiatric comorbidities or suicidal ideation. So the mental health stuff going on also was, you know, not affected by you know, it wasn't more severe in the smaller patients. Um, lastly, they found distress related to eating and body image was more severe in atypical anorexia. And I read that, and at first I was like, oh, that's, that's like, that's a good nugget of information. And then I was thinking about it, and I was like, that makes so much sense. Because it's the eating disorder voice, you know, here's my assumption. Here's my hypothesis. This is not based on research. But um, if you have the eating disorder voice in your head... And then you have the world outside and the diagnostic criteria reinforcing that. In my mind, of course, the distress <laughs> is going to be higher when it comes to eating and body image. Um, so another study um, found a similar thing. So they found um, they were looking at specifically weight history. So, um, you know, had a person like lost a lot of weight in a small amount of time, like that sort of thing was their big weight changes in their history as opposed to their admissions weight, like what they were admitted to treatment weighing. Um, and they found that it was the weight history that was a better indicator of health issues than um, the current weight. And they were looking at things like markers of malnutrition, so low phosphorus, lower heart rate, etc. Um, but what I found really interesting was that atypical anorexia patients scored higher global scores on the ED examination questionnaire, which is used to assess eating disorders. So, um, you know, if they didn't have a less severe eating disorder. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of this research looks at a history of weight loss. And I almost wonder, like, is it the weight loss or like, are we sort of missing the point with that too? I think it's, you know, it's, it's complicated, but I think when we focus specifically on the amount of weight lost, um, for fatter patients, I think we're going in a good direction, but we sometimes miss the goal. You know, the goal is really like, no matter the weight changes, eating disorders can be severe in my mind. So 
Um, another study found that folks with atypical anorexia were diagnosed later than those with anorexia and actually tended to lose more weight overall. That makes sense, right? Because, you know, if you start off at, uh, you know, X hundred number of pounds and you lose half of your weight, um, you can still be considered, you know, say I lost, I could lose, you know, I'm not going to use numbers here, so I'm being careful. I could lose, uh, you know, a significant amount of weight and still be considered overweight. And a smaller patient could lose a fraction of that weight and be considered, according to the DSM, uh, severely anorexic. So, uh, you know, something to think about there. So um, two other studies that I had found that I really like, um, I wanted to highlight. So one was called, What's Weight Got to Do With It? What's weight got to do, got to do with it? Anyway, um, mental health trainees' perceptions of a client with anorexia nervosa symptoms. So this study um, <laughs> found, so basically they created this case vignette and they showed it to people who are training to become uh, mental health practitioners. And they looked at the differences based on the client's um, listed BMI. So uh, I'm going to read you part of their abstract here. They examined the effect of client body mass index, aka bullshit meter of incompetence, on diagnostic impressions and perceptions of mental health trainees. Participants read a vignette of a mock female client presenting for treatment with symptoms of anorexia nervosa. Participants were randomly assigned to one of three conditions in which the client was described as underweight, normal weight, or overweight. Results revealed that the participants assigned to the underweight condition diagnosed the client with anorexia nervosa or atypical anorexia nervosa more frequently than participants assigned to the overweight and normal weight conditions. There was no difference based on client's BMI when the more general diagnosis of OSFAD or other specified feeding or eating disorder was included. However, um, participants in the overweight and normal weight conditions recommended um, fewer therapy sessions for the client than participants in the underweight condition. Furthermore, participants more strongly endorsed weight-based stereotypes to describe the client when she was overweight than normal weight or underweight. So no difference in what these patients are experiencing, no difference in description other than BMI in their three categories. Um, and that had to do with you know, people's perception who matter, their mental health practitioners. So we got some work to do there. Um, the other study I wanted to talk about was Erin um, Harrop, who we talked about before, and Janelle Mensinger did a study um, in 2021, Dr. Harrop, I should say, and Dr. Mensinger. Um, they looked at 75 eligible studies that were coded for 61 variables, um, looking at atypical anorexia and anorexia. And they found that although atypical anorexia um, appeared to occur more frequently than anorexia in communities, fewer patients with atypical anorexia were being referred and admitted to eating disorder-specific care, particularly in the U.S. Hmm. So um, those are just two other studies that I found really impactful to look at. Um, and this idea that atypical anorexia is atypical is really a misnomer. It's atypical because it's not following what the DSM says is stereotypical, you know, anorexia based on weight. Um, it's not atypical based on numbers, <laughs> and it's not less significant as we've discussed. The truth is, and I, you know, I'm struggling to find the exact number here because there's a lot of differing claims, but something around 6% of patients with anorexia are deemed underweight according to the BMI. So that means 94 percent, 94% would be thrown into this atypical category, possibly. Uh, that doesn't seem very atypical to me. So um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was TikTok. Oh, yes. Good old friend TikTok. If you don't know, you can find me on TikTok too, um, along with this podcast. So I'm on TikTok at Molly in Progress. And um, <laughs> I have had some interesting experiences there existing on the internet as a fat person who talks about eating disorders. Um, I, you know, I've posted a lot of stuff on there about eating disorders, um, specifically about fat phobia and eating disorders. And um, that makes people pretty angry. And one thing that happened to me was I was using, you know, you have to use hashtags uh, on social media. <laughs> 
case you didn't know, um, to kind of like get your content out there sometimes. And one of the hash, I was just using hashtags that other people were using. I didn't put that much thought into them, but I was using, using like hashtag ED recovery. Um, TikTok has come up with all of these things to like kind of get around the censorship um, moderation stuff. So people will say like Ed Sheeran recovery um, instead of ED recovery. Um, so I was using like Ed Sheeran recovery, um, ED recovery, ED recovery where the O is a zero to throw off the algorithm. Um, I was using hashtag Anna Rec or Anna Recovery um, because that was a popular hashtag for better or for worse, probably for worse. And people got really angry when they noticed that I was using that and they felt like I was taking this privileged, pure, beautiful diagnosis away from them as a fat person. So people were pissed. Um, and I made a couple videos about that and I said, hey, you know, atypical anorexia is a thing and um also the diagnostic criteria are kind of problematic and I gave like you know a 30 second version of what we're doing a whole episode about now and um I got some trolls and I want to share with you a strategy for dealing with trolls who are gatekeeping a mental health diagnosis which is sort of what was going on here so do you know Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Specifically the movie. So I loved, you know, the book as a kid. I've since learned, I guess, Roald Dahl is kind of problematic in some areas. But um, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I'm specifically thinking of the movie. Um, oh, y'all, I've been drinking ginger kombucha over here because I'm having some hot girl tummy issues. Um, and I don't know if it actually helps, but it tastes good and it goes down easy. So I... Um, I'm like having some like burpitude over here. But anyway, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, all the children are seen as bad because they have vices, because there's no moral ambiguity in the universe and there's a lot of like purity and black and white thinking. Um, we could do a whole episode about this because there's so much fat phobia in this movie and in this book about the fat kid and the interesting role that food plays in the whole thing. But... I want to bring your attention to our girly, our boss queen, Veruca Salt. And her vice is that she's like the spoiled bratty kid who's constantly demanding things of her dad. She's like, daddy, I want a squirrel. And like, I want, you know, the chocolate bar with the golden ticket. Um, so whatever. For all the complications of the wonky universe and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Roald Dahl, um, her voice is what I hear when I read these comments. And I'll share it with you now. You're welcome. Um, because <laughs> she's just kind of like, Daddy, the fat patients are saying they could have anorexia too. It's not fair. Um, so I'm just going to give you an example of uh, three TikTok comments I've gotten in her voice. Oh, Molly, <laughs> you've really lost it now. No. Um, okay, so one person said, it makes perfect sense that a weight-based disorder will have a weight-based diagnostic criteria. Hmm. Okay, Veruca Salt. Well, let's unpack that for a minute here, because is it a weight-based disorder or are we looking at a mental illness? Eating disorders are mental illnesses <laughs> with behavioral parts, you know, like it's not a weight-based disorder. Um, and the DSM, the way that it's framed sort of makes it one. So then the next person says, imagine being so desperate to have any given serious illness that you refuse to accept it has a specific diagnostic criteria. Oh Lord. So yeah, clearly for me talking about <laughs> somebody who's in long-term recovery for me, typical anorexia, I'm so desperate have a serious illness yeah mm -hmm, sure um so then the next person says oh another big person denying the bmi because it tells them the truth um okay that uh, that one speaks for itself they're using the bullshit meter of incompetence so there have also been, though, some people on TikTok who are like, wait, no, this is totally a thing because I've been responding to those crazy troll comments and being like, what is this? Like, it seems like there is this perceived hierarchy in the toxic ED recovery world of, um, you know, anorexia sort of being put on this pedestal. And this is a life-threatening mental illness. So, you know, and why are we saying 
you know, fat people can't have that diagnosis um, and denying their lived experience. So some people, oh man, this ginger kombucha. Some people um, had some really good insight and shared some things that I thought were helpful. So one person said, I think also accepting that fat people can be anorexic goes against the idea that fat people just aren't trying hard enough to lose weight. Yeah, so like if we believe that it's super simple to lose weight and fat people are just lazy, um, how could a fat person be anorexic? Yeah. And the next person says, no, you're right. They do view it as an achievement. I know I did when I got small when I was sick, all until I developed bulimia. Oh, I love this person's self-awareness. I think that speaks really strongly to their own recovery. Um, the next person said, uh, something about like treatment. So they said, this has felt so strongly in eating disorder units. So like treatment units, the anorexia program had this unspoken air of superiority, importance, and purity. People would say like, oh, so you're binge. I mean, you're bulimia nervosa. I'm anorexia restrictive subtype. And there was, they were talking about this hierarchy of even the subtypes. What is up with that? We're going to return to our voice memo friend because I really liked what they had to say about this too. Multiple groups of people benefited from atypical anorexia nervosa and anorexia nervosa being separate diagnoses. Medical providers don't have to examine their own bias and fat phobia if they don't need to incorporate a broader definition of anorexia nervosa. It also threatens the diet industry if there was a widespread understanding that eating disorder behaviors in people in higher weight bodies are not acceptable and that it is literally morally reprehensible and deadly to sell and encourage them. People who are literally pro-ana are super threatened by the idea that people who aren't visibly emaciated can have anorexia nervosa. People who are pro-ana tend to believe very vehemently in calories in, calories out, and also have a lot of their identity wrapped up in their appearance, being proof of their quote-unquote success at anorexia nervosa. And it's a huge threat to that sense of self and that identity and that belief system mm-hmm. that they could share that diagnosis with people who are in higher weight bodies. For real. I wish I hadn't spent so much time in terrible parts of the internet and didn't know this, but here we are. Oh, I feel Additionally, yeah. people who have recovered from low weight anorexia who are not literally pro-ana also often seem to have some level of pride, validation, and grounding in having been emaciated and talk about this a lot. If you look at most eating disorder memoirs, even ones that specifically don't give weight numbers, you can really see that these books are basically a love letter to the eating disorder, to the behaviors, and to being in this very low weight body and all that comes with that. We also see this in a lot of the people who have amassed these really big social media audiences talking about their eating disorder recovery, and they tend to have this narrative that is, oh, I was at a very low weight, and now I'm in a straight-sized body, and you can do this too, and now things are perfect. Totally, totally. And to have an understanding of anorexia nervosa and recovery from it in people who are never at very low weights and don't necessarily recover into straight-sized bodies challenges some of the aspects of these narratives that make them so compelling. One prominent person online who has talked about being fat and having anorexia is Tess Holiday, who is a blogger, uh, model, uh, plus size model, makeup uh, person. And um, she posted this video on TikTok the other day when I was researching for this episode and I came across it and I was like, oh my goodness, gotta share this. Okay, so Tess Holiday is a plus size model, blogger, um, I don't know, like makeup person. Um, And she came out in 2021 um, as a fat person with anorexia online. And I will say her comment section was one of the most horrendous things that I have ever seen online. I've seen some pretty bad fat phobia. This was uh, (laughs) pretty bad. Gotta rehydrate over here after that. Um, But she posted this TikTok, I don't know, yesterday um, about sort of her experience coming out as being anorexic and having a public platform online. And I thought I would just play that for y'all. I wanted to talk to y'all about what happened to me yesterday because I think it's important to discuss. I have always been really vulnerable online and I have shared my life in a way that has felt good and authentic to me with y'all. And part of that was making the choice to share my eating disorder diagnosis. And obviously the world had a lot to say because I'm fat 
and fat people just can't be anorexic, which is not true. I know, I know. And I try to be understanding that there's gonna be people that are gonna see me, hear me talking about this and just think, what the fuck? But also <laughs> I just think more people should practice critical thinking, but I, that's too much to ask. Anyway, yesterday I woke up and there were these two pea brains that had posted a video about their shitty podcast, kind of talking about uh, my eating disorder and saying that I was lying, which okay. But the part about it that bothered me was the deep dive that they did trying to discredit my lived experiences by saying that, well, she had an experience that, so I couldn't have experienced that. And obviously the math is not mathing. This is just a reminder to those of y'all that might be suffering from an ED like me that eating disorders are a mental illness. Since coming out with my diagnosis, there have been, you know, medical professionals worldwide that have literally talked about how we need to restructure the criteria that allows them to diagnose people properly because it has been deeply ingrained in fat phobic, you know, culture. It's weird. It's almost like the medical industrial complex doesn't give a shit about fat people. What? You don't have to prove anything to anybody. It's your lived experience. No one can take that away from you. And if anyone is debating on whether or not you were actually suffering from a mental illness, then baby, they are a piece of shit. And I'll be damned if I'm gonna let somebody use a my name to get views and talk about something deeply personal that I chose to be vulnerable about to help others. And TikTok removed my video for bullying and my response to that. But it's fine because I didn't wanna give them views anyway. But just know that you are not alone. I believe you, you are trying your best, you are loved, and that's all that matters. Be well. So yeah, that's what Tess Holiday had to say about it. Um, you know, like as we're wrapping up, because <laughs> I know this is a long episode, so I do appreciate if you're still here. Um, something I've been thinking a lot about is how this relates to the whole sick enough trap. You might remember episode one of this podcast was about that. Um, <laughs> ay, ay, ay. The sick enough trap to me is really like this trap that we get into with the eating disorder. And it can be a symptom of the eating disorder itself, but it's perpetuated by stuff like this. Um, and the sick enough trap basically says, I'm not sick enough to recover or I need to accomplish this, this, and this before I'm sick enough. And I think that this really plays into it. Um, I wanted to share with you a little bit about my own journey with atypical anorexia um, before we close out today's episode, just to say that um, I very well could have never been diagnosed with this. Um, I could have gone through life and just never even have gotten treatment. I think my life would have been drastically different and I might have wound up in treatment at some point because things were just not sustainable but everybody blamed that on me not being able to manage my weight and I say everybody including myself manage your weight what does that even mean um but I tried my whole life to lose weight and you know especially the medical fat phobia piece um was really really harmful and led to me developing atypical anorexia but when I first sought help for my eating disorder, I was misdiagnosed and I was misdiagnosed with binge eating disorder because uh, that's what I assumed I had because I was a fat person. People weren't really talking about atypical anorexia. There were no fat people on the internet talking about eating disorders that I could find. Um, and, you know, I just was very lost and I went to a psychiatrist and I said, hey, you know, I think I have this eating disorder. And she didn't really ask a lot of questions and she definitely didn't ask the right questions. And, um, you know, I found myself many years later getting treatment for the first time. Um, and I was correctly diagnosed with atypical anorexia. And, you know, I just think sometimes if I had not like happened to go to college in this one town in upstate New York that just happened to be 45 minutes from this health at every size treatment center. You know, I think there 
the closest thing to health at every size that I found. Um, and you know, if I had not happened to have just been in the right place at the right time, I never would have had access to that diagnosis or that care. And, um, one way that I think that diagnosis and care really matters is that, um, they knew to test for the right things. So, um, when I admitted to treatment for the first time, um, they did something called a DEXA scan, which, uh, looks at your bone density. They did blood tests, they did EKGs, they did metabolic testing and body composition analysis. Not to say like, they didn't do body comp stuff like, oh, you have this much body fat, but it was more like, what is your lean muscle mass looking? What is the strength of your cells? What does your hydration look like? And uh, that was a huge wake up call for me. There were things, and I, you know, I don't tend to get into specifics about that because I think people can latch on to any opportunity for comparison that comes their way. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But what I will say is that my body was showing signs of malnutrition through some of these measures. And that is part of what allowed my insurance company or the treatment center to build my insurance company correctly. It's part of what allowed me to access care. And not all people experience those medical side effects. Uh, and I think a lot of the people who are experiencing them will never know because they're not tested for, because we're not considering the fact that restriction in higher weight bodies can be harmful. And something that I've run into is that when you Google those things individually, what does the internet tell me? So when I Google, for example, there was a change in my heart rhythm on the EKG showing like a specific prolonged interval. And um, that is associated with restriction and with eating disorders. But when I looked it up on the internet, it, you know, it had a caveat about eating disorders, but it was mostly associated with, you know, the O word, obesity. So I went, okay. And I, you know, had just started getting help at this point. (laughs) So I was like, oh no, like, see, this is evidence that you know, the malnutrition doesn't exist and my restrictive eating is not the problem. And then I, you know, went and Googled other other things that I was experiencing and it was like, well, that can be genetic or this can be, you know, due to a a person being too fat. (laughs) And, you know, even when people are tested for the right things, the health industry, because it's so fat phobic uh, and misattributes, you know, it just mis- it, it conflates health and weight way too much. And, um, my heart goes out and I just have so much compassion for people who are navigating this because I've been through it and it was so complicated mentally. And it makes me think of, you know, Sonia Renee Taylor in the body's not an apology talking about having to translate your thoughts and unlearning and, Um, highly would recommend the body's not an apology, by the way, we'll have a episode at some point about book recommendations for sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of my thoughts about atypical anorexia. Um, I will say I definitely experienced differential treatment due to my weight, um, in different treatment settings. And I found recovery despite that. Um, I think sometimes we look at this and we're like, well, you know, all of this is too hard. <laughs> There's too much fat phobia. The, you know, treatment industrial complex is, you know, too out of touch and not worth saving. And I don't think that that's true. I think that there is hope here. And I think that um, what I really want to offer you is this information with the caveat that um, people are resilient and that recovery is fucking possible. Recovery is possible despite all of this, in spite of all of this. I feel like I recovered in spite of everything I had been taught about my own body. And I had to do so much unlearning and relearning just about, you know, why I deserved nutrition. (laughs) So those are kind of my thoughts just based on my own story. Um, And I so appreciate everybody that has contributed to this episode, um, and just this community, because part of what got me through recovery was finding other fat people with eating disorders and specifically fat people with eating disorders, uh, who are in recovery, which I'm going to be honest, was kind of hard to find. 
there's a lot of people on the internet with eating disorders. There's not a lot of people who, uh, you know, advertise that they are in strong, solid recovery, especially who are fat. Let alone people who are marginalized in other ways. You know, re- I think representation is just hugely important. So if you're feeling hopeless, if you're a fat person who's struggling with a restrictive eating disorder, or honestly any eating disorder at all, because I think that's a bit of a misnomer. Lots of eating disorders involve restriction. Um, I want you to know that it can get better and that you are worth fighting for. You are sick enough to recover. No matter what this big-ass DSM says, no matter um, you know what uneducated healthcare providers might tell you, no matter what the treatment industry itself might fall into, I want you to know that you are worth recovery. You are sick enough, you are suffering enough, and the fact that you are suffering in itself means that you deserve to feel better. Um, I wanted to leave us on one comment from uh, one of the submissions on Instagram, which says, um, recovery is hard, but possible. Celebrating one year in recovery today. Ah, so yeah, you heard it from them. You heard it from me. Keep fighting forward. You got this. Thank you so much for listening. I really enjoyed talking with you all today. Um, I'm just imagining other people here listening because uh, really I'm sitting alone in my kitchen next to the DSM, but um, (laughs) this has been a good time and I hope to bring you more content soon. I'm going to stop promising things because I tend to overpromise and underdeliver because life gets overwhelming. And so far though, I do have space in my life to do this as best as I can. And I want to keep doing it. So thank you so much for being here. Um, definitely subscribe, um, you know, share the podcast with your friends and follow on Instagram.